Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We're coming at you here with our 60th episode of our coverage of the ongoing Third World War. The U.S. has increased its strikes against its Middle Eastern enemies, specifically the enemies of Israel, as they target IRGC-aligned groups across Iraq and Syria, and also renew their strikes against Ansar Allah and the Houthis, who have in turn continued their assaults on Red Sea ships. So we're covering the whole Middle East situation as well as the unfolding political crisis in America, both on the border and in the upcoming 2024 presidential elections. Of course, Russia, we're hearing word from Putin about expanding the DMZ and all sorts of other things happening, both in the church world and on some other fronts, Africa as well. So it's going to be a really packed episode this week week. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing really good this past weekend. You know, the US uh, and the UK have actually announced that the Houthis have sustained significant bombings on various targets around Yemen. And this is, of course, on behalf of Israel, as we've reported for the past few weeks. And of course, these strikes have allegedly been in good weather with precision-based uh, B-1B bombers, as well as some missiles shot directly from the ships. Just as we've reported you know, for the last few weeks, it's been the same sort of trajectory. 36 targets across Yemen, 13 locations have been hit that belong to the Houthis. And the Houthis haven't really stopped and haven't really declared that any of their conditions have been met. The primary condition, of course, for the Houthis to complete their blockade of the Southern Red Sea Straits was that the humanitarian aid would be com completely unopposed and allowed to enter into Gaza to actually assist the Palestinians suffering under the IDF and Israeli military oppression in Gaza and all those areas. Again, violence, of course, is increasing in the West Bank, which we'll probably cover shortly. And naturally, Syria, Syria and Iraq has been looking like the new hot zone. Joe Biden, of course, retaliating for the uh, strikes caused on U.S. Uh, bases, illegal bases, of course, in Iraq and Syria by uh, commanding up to 85 strikes Again, allegedly, it's been reported, but being based on the Obama era history of you know, drone bombings and things like that, the strikes had to be conducted in good weather, but on key targets, or you know, allegedly that belonged to Iraqi Iraqi resistance bases around those particular areas, uh, and strikes on eighty-five targets. I mean, in just the span of one weekend, usually on Friday, Saturday, it's been reported this took place. The U.S. is really putting its foot down on. You know, particular resistance, uh, allegedly Iranian proxies. But again, most of these forces opposing U.S. bases are belonging to actual local Syrians as well as Iraqi militiamen who are not. Yeah, yeah, sure, they may be re receiving arms from the Iranians, but they are local resistance fighters who are actually not ISIS affiliated. That's that's one important fact. So they're not actually Islamic militants. They're actually local nationalistic forces opposing U.S. occupation of their territory, similar to the Palestinians opposing Israeli occupations. This is the similarity which these particular uh, small militia groups have in these particular areas. But yes, the U.S. is actually under Joe Biden. And it is showing some strength. Uh, at least the hawkish elements of the Democratic establishment are actually pushing back. And all of this is taking place while. The doves of the Biden administration, you know, figures such as Anthony Blinken are actually traveling from Saudi Arabia to Israel, trying to conduct alleged peace talks or actually push this ICJ, let's have a peaceful solution agenda across. Perhaps this is all for show, but at the same time, the bombing is is really showing us that the U.S. military presence in the area is not going away, right? The conditions of the Houthis are not going to be met. And again, the U.S. is here to support Israel until the very end. I think that's the general gist of the last week and a half we've been seeing, and it's not looking like the like there's a peaceful resolution on the horizon. None of the sides are actually interested in that. In fact, they're looking to crush their opposition with sheer force at this point. Yeah, these bombings were, of course, in response to supposed Kataib Hezbollah bombings on a U.S. base in or near Jordan. There were some disputes about where the base was. 
the Jordanians said it wasn't actually in Jordan proper. It was just near the border. Of course, the U.S. said it was a base that was in Jordan. And there was three soldiers killed there, uh, one of them being some kind of staff sergeant, so slightly high-ranking person. But the but this group, Kateb Hezbollah, before the U.S. strike response even started, they basically said, oh, we're not going to strike any more U.S. troops. And then in response to that, the U.S. released a statement that they were not going to strike within Iran itself. So it was just, again, that was what everybody was afraid of, because if that had happened, that would have been the scale of response would have been unable to be anticipated or gauged because it would be somewhat unprecedented. But of course, we're still seeing these strikes across the general region to try to assuage, you know, some more hawkish elements that do want that full-on strike on Iranian territory. That's what John Bolton has been saying. That's what all these retired generals that now work for these think tanks in the military-industrial complex, they're calling for precision strikes within Tehran itself, even, and other things like that. So very bellicose rhetoric coming from the Zog state here in the States right now. And of course, the UK, they have similar thinking people as well. But as far as the soldiers that died, it was interesting. They were all black. And apparently all the people that were injured, there was 40 plus injuries. They were all from the Arizona National Guard. So in the midst of the most unprecedented border invasion in history, members of the Arizona National Guard are instead at a base in Jordan. It, it, it really boggles the mind and really makes you, it can make you pretty angry if you start to think about how much money that is and where the priorities of the people in power are, you know, and why someone like Antony Blinken, like you said, may, or, or any of these characters would want our soldiers over there instead of, you know, preventing the great replacement from happening here. We're going to get into the border situation a little bit later. But as far as some of these strikes on the Houthis go as well, it seems that the Houthi resolve against U.S. and Israel against the U.S. and Israeli coalition and against, you know, these ships and really enforcing the blockades. Reports have actually come out. They've said that in the month of December, only one ship was able to make port at the port in Eilat, you know, Israel's southernmost town on the Red Sea. So that shows you how effective the Houthi blockade and the bombardments around the Bab el-Mandeb Strait have really been. So the supply chain apparently in Greece and whatnot is starting to actually feel it with some of this LNG and these other uh, energy shipments that aren't able to make it to the next point in the supply chain because of what the Houthis are doing. But it is actually getting better for the Houthis because, of course, as you know, there's technically three factions across Yemen. Of course, 95% of the population in all the relevant areas in Western Yemen are controlled by Ansar Allah, you know, the Houthis. But there's a UAE faction that controls a lot of southern Yemen and the, the islands off the coast near the Gulf of Aden. And then there are, of course, the Saudi direct-backed coalition, which just controls most of the eastern desert near Oman. And one of the leaders of the UAE, and they, the Saudi UAE forces work together, one of the leaders of the UAE-backed group, uh, Colonel Hussein al-Kushabi, he says, I'm Hussein al-Kushabi. I declare my resignation from my rank and my defection from the legitimacy army that did not allow us as members of the Ministry of Defense to show solidarity with Palestine. My message to army members, go back to your homes, for our leaders have begun to protect Zionist ships at sea and support the entity, even if they tried to deceive. But their support has become clear and it is still there. So we did see some Saudi strikes against the Houthis a few weeks back, and the U.S. has really been trying to get them to be the ones to take care of that problem. But it seems that that's not really going to work out because... The UA and Saudi Arabia, they're already taking so much heat from their populations at home but because of their lukewarmness on the Gaza issue and on Palestine. And of course, now we're seeing even their own proxies within Yemen aren't even willing to stick by them. So it really does show you how dramatic the sentiment in the Islamic world is against Israel and world Jewry right now.
Yeah, that's right. So sentiment is definitely breaking down. And, you know, as we're seeing these massive pro-Palestinian protests across uh, the UK, right, specifically, like this is the main NATO ally besides the US who is actually involved in this particular bombardment of the Middle East. What's the response, right? So we see hundreds and thousands of, uh, you know, legal immigrants protesting against this particular involvement of the UK in you know the support of Israel and the, and the UK you know United Kingdom defense minister Grant Sharps actually gives a speech in the British parliament speaking out in favor of actually stopping the Houthis strongly it says these these attacks of the Houthis have a significant effect on degrading our capabilities the Houthis intent is to continue disrupting the Red Sea and it has not fully diminished it is very irresponsible and illegal he says and the next day you know, Grant Sharps actually travels to the World Defense Show in Saudi Arabia, naturally, of course, probably to sell British military technology or at least display it to the Saudis and actually, you know, continue those sort of relations, building strong. So we do see both Anthony Blinken and the British defense minister traveling back and forth from their respective nations to, of course, the, the source, right, the country which supports most of these actions in Saudi Arabia. Again, these interesting links between ancient Yemenis, uh, Israeli, not, not even Israeli, but like ancient Jewish tribes and the and the state of Israel continues to this day. Of course, the Saudi Arabians, as we know, do look at the Houthis as a potential future target. So they're, of course, completely behind the scenes, naturally. The Saudi elites are completely in support of the UK and the US actually pressuring the Houthis as much as possible. So there is that never-ending link that we've spoken about for you know, a few months at this point. And it's it's not really going away. And again, the UK really needs to kind of have some introspection here. Firstly, you're going to allow all these immigrants from Muslim countries and former colonies enter into your country. Then you're going to support the particular movement. I mean, this is just provoking internal disrepair. And naturally, the, the protests continue. Like we see a lot of Twitter spaces I mean, led by British-born Muslims actually protesting against this particular these particular acts online. And we see this on the ground as well in London and some of these other cities. And this is, of course, uh, leading to the greater discussion of the role of Islam in, in the world today and exactly why immigration in general from these Muslim countries to the West has been perpetrated by these conflicts, right? Or whether exactly is this taking place? Is Israel responsible? Are people of Israeli ancestry responsible for these particular actions? It all ties together into one big mosaic, which I think we discuss here in World War now pretty much in detail. But what is the response here, right? So the UK definitely in support of these bombings. Uh, you know, its ships, its planes are involved very heavily. And, you know, let's just go back to Joe Biden and the whole Texas situation, right? So Joe Biden, obviously trying to improve his, um, trying to improve his election capacity moving forward. And we see actually him by executive decree, the Joe Biden administration threatening, not even threatening, but executing sanctions on four really Zion, like these are heavy Zionist Israeli, I would say, at least the, the document doesn't necessarily declare them as occupiers, but it does call them aggressive settlers in the West Bank. So we're talking about the first sanctions on any Israeli citizens since the since the 7th of October by the US Treasury. And these people are David Chai Chastai, he's 29 years old, Yunon Levi, 31, Yenain Tanjil and Shalom Zikerman, 32. So these people are all in their 20s, early 30s, very aggressive Zionist settlers actually online as well as on the ground pushing for Israeli violence in the West Bank. So interesting that Joe Biden actually, you know, and the US Treasury kind of came together and said, look, we're going to actually place financial sanctions on these first 
for Zionist figures. Mo- mo- notice most of them are young people, right? So most of them are very aggressively online, kind of they're all millennials. So uh, it is interesting that the old money isn't really being touched here. But Joe Biden does need to put on a show that, look, we're, we're actually, we do stand with the ICJ. We aren't calling for, you know, we aren't in support of these genocidal Zionists here in the Middle East. And we do call for a general stance on peace, right? Just what Anthony Blinken is doing. But Joe Biden, yeah, definitely playing a multiple games of chess at the same time. And I don't think his brain capacity can actually handle it, which is probably why most of these decisions and decrees, despite them being published and signed by his hand and, you know, allegedly in his name, are probably being done by other people in his administration. So quite an interesting approach for, you know, for the first time we see actual Israelis sanctioned by America, you know, not Iranians, not North Koreans, not Russians, but actual Zionist Jews. It's really crazy. And these guys, these settler types, I mean, these really are some of the worst people out there. If people have been on X or any of these other places, you've seen these videos. There's zones of control throughout the West Bank. Everybody knows this. There's areas that have Israeli security guarantees and Israeli patrols and whatnot. There's areas that have Palestinian authority control solely. And then there's this entire kind of spectrum area that the Israelis never want to make very clear where there's kind of partial control and the Israeli government gives the settlers weapons. And there's all these videos like settlers who are literally just people that moved in to different land occupied by a different country as recognized by the United Nations, was given guns by their government and then act as an occupying force. There's videos of them detaining and pointing guns at like kids that they find, you know, with their freaking families, animals and stuff like that. There's all sorts of horrible things going on. And the reason Biden did this, of course, is because he's freaking out about the Muslim vote and some of the progressive vote in America, because he has to win Michigan. And Trump is polling fairly well in Michigan these days. Of course, we know Trump won in 2016, had Michigan stolen from him in 2020. And now in 2024, if Biden doesn't shape up on some of this stuff and not present as a total Israeli stooge, then he's going to lose that Muslim vote, which in Michigan totally matters. And Michigan is it could be one of the states that makes or breaks this next election here. So he's freaking out. He knows that he needs to present this way. He did this, of course. He issued that executive order right before the airstrikes went out. So you know he's trying to kind of placate everybody here with something, which, again, I don't like Biden or anything, but Biden is probably better than a myriad of Republicans on this issue right now. Like with any number of other Republicans, especially people like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, Who knows how deep in we'd be against Iran at this point? I mean, there's genuinely just no guessing. And these settlers, of course, create so much more possibility for an escalatory black swan event or something to happen that draws the U.S. into a conflict with Palestine effectively and, of course, all of its new allies across the, all of its new invigorated allies across the Muslim world. And a perfect example of this entire situation leading to these types of situations that are going to get us into a really hot World War III very soon is stories like this, how these Houthi missiles, they're just launching them at U.S. ships, Israeli ships, U.K. ships, all sorts of stuff. And for the first time, this is on February 1st, the phalanx CIWS, which is basically the close, the close range kind of machine gun interception weapon that is on these ships, these, you know, big naval ships, whether it's a missile launcher, some kind of destroyer or something like that. There's when a missile gets close enough, they have to engage these effective, you know, defensive machine guns. And for the first time, a Houthi missile caused the CIWS to need to be activated and the missile became came within very close striking distance of a US Navy vessel. And it means that if that's happening, you know, this soon into sort of, you know, this effective war between the US and Ansar Allah, it seems that it's not a matter of if, but when a US ship takes a Houthi missile directly. 
That's right, because the main threat here, again, is the death, is the mass, mass casualty death, not not of Israeli soldiers, which has already taken place. And, you know, whenever, like, a group or a squad of Israeli soldiers do die, there is this, this cry of, like, wow, this war is unjust, it needs to be put to an end. But what will take place if hundreds of U.S. sailors, officers aboard the ship, you know, Navy personnel are actually taken out by a Houthi missile? Because, again, we're not too sure the U.S. Uh, US ships have not been hit by many missiles over the last few decades. We're not too sure what exactly the outcome will be of a Houthi strike if it breaches these short-range, long-range defenses of the ship, how many casualties there will be. I mean, this is tragic, and it will affect, you know, we've seen how this sort of rhetoric can lead to further escalations in the past, you know, through U.S. politics, how exactly this these sort of tragedies can be politicized by um, U.S. irresponsible pro-Israeli politicians. So let's not even speculate as to where, this, where exactly this can go. But we've seen continued strikes against U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq. And again, U.S. casualties haven't been too high at this point. But we have seen actually, uh, unfortunately, for the, for the Kurds, who actually there's a Kurdish resistance group, which the U.S. is funding actually six of them have been declared dead they've been uh actually taken out by allegedly a group associated with assad so in fact we we actually realized that another proxy of the u.s is being trained by america on its own basis for allegedly uh you know allegedly being involved with the kurdish resistance movement so the u.s on its own basis in these areas like syria iraq are actually training future future potential terrorists future alleged freedom fighters you these mujahideen who will fight against the side and will fight against some of these other local forces i mean these are probably the this are these are probably the visible traces of those forces you know in the past who were you know who knows who was trained on these bases? Probably in the past, maybe uh, proto-ISIS, Mujahideen fighters. We're not actually entirely sure. And again, all these these reports are all coming from only U.S. sources. So now that they're openly stating that you know six pro-Kurdish fighters have been have been slain associated with the United States, this is again. Uh, leading us to conclude that yes, there's a lot more going on on the ground in these secret bases in the Middle East, which are completely illegal. And again, putting the threat, you know, placing the marker like a threat marker on U.S. troops in this particular place. But Conrad, you're completely right. We've spoken about the Black Swan potential event of a U.S. ship going down since the beginning, since those two aircraft carriers appeared in the Eastern Mediterranean, and now that they've actually shifted, like they're literally floating closer and closer to any particular, you know, to particular. Um, you know, target points for a World War Three. these particular hot zones, Ethiopia, Yemen, uh, Egypt, places like that where exactly uh, these future events could actually transpire and push the conflict into a uh, hot zone. You know, we've, since the beginning of the Trump presidency, we've seen this potential escalation with Iran go forward. But uh, fortunately for us, the Persian Gulf is not actually, uh, you know, you know, main target of the US. The US presence there is not too heavy. But again, looking into the future, hopefully the US will stay away from that Iranian adjacent territory because anything related to Iran at the moment will have direct consequences on you know the world geopolitical outline you know even more so than some of these you know proxy groups and small islamist movements and even local nationalist movements like the houthis we just have to take that into consideration so yes the houthis being you know being actually hit very heavily right now almost on a weekly basis every weekend we hear about these heavy bombings throughout the week and the us is you know proudly reporting on it along with the uk we still need to consider that yes these are just practice runs for maybe a potential future conflict being pushed with iran so these these B, b1b bombers they're all essentially warming up for a potential strike you know uh lord forbid further into 2024 if an escalation of iran will take place because again nobody wants troops on the ground but a potential long-range bombing operation yes i think 
most politicians within Washington DC, unfortunately, could even sign their names onto something like that. I think that's the, especially for the safety of Israel, like this is what's on the line for these people. And this is what even, you know, you mentioned Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, that we've been shown that not only Democrats, but also so-called conservative Republicans are completely okay with supporting Israel to the very end, which means long range bombardment and placing US troops at risk. And of course, this isn't even the end of the escalations. We see Yov Gallant, you know, the Minister of War of Israel, saying that just because we may declare a ceasefire in the south in Gaza does not mean we will be declaring one in the north against Hezbollah. So the the implications are getting very clear that the Zionists are really trying to take this fight uh, to Hezbollah as soon as possible. Although at the same time, Netanyahu has said that Israel is not ready to accept an agreement to free the hostages hostages in Gaza at any cost. So. They really have no. They really don't want to make any deals, and they Netanyahu knows he's again. I've said this a million times, but he knows he's political toast when this thing wraps up. So he has to keep expanding it. But as they continue to expand in Gaza as well, we've seen them leafleting Rafah, the area near the Rafah crossing where most of at this point the Palestinians are sheltering. Like over a million people are in the far south of Gaza at this point, and the Israelis have said that they're going to enter the Philadelphia corridor and move in to remove Netanyahu claims that. They have settled, which I guess means taken care of, 17 out of 24 Hamas battalions. And most of the Romanian battalions are located in the southern Gaza Strip in Rafa, and we're going to take care of them as well. So, and now they're leafleting Rafa, and they want to go into the Philadelphia Corridor, which is 14 miles of land that is technically controlled by Egypt that goes into the Gaza Strip. So it's, it's the only real border between Palestine and Egypt that exists. And in theory, that would have been where aid could come through and all sorts of things. But we remember at the beginning of the war when Israel quickly started bombing, you know, the Rafah crossing. And Egypt has made it very clear that this is a red line for them if Israel enters, that there's going to be serious consequences. And remember, it's not as big of a thing as Iran because Egypt is literally paid off to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year to not attack Israel. But the Egyptian army is still massive. It's one of the most powerful armies in Africa, one of the most par- powerful armies in the Muslim world. So if Israel is to truly get on the bad end of Egypt and somehow put all of that diplomatic and monetary, all of those diplomatic and monetary resources the U.S. used to get Egypt on their side in the trash, things could get very interesting. And at the same time, the Hamas battalions that are in northern Gaza, in Gaza City, it appears that some of them are like Netanyahu claims that they've totally taken out 17 of them, but some of these battalions are regrouping and reforming in the remnants of each different battalion that lost a bunch of men, and they are still fighting in Gaza City. Like, there's reports that even 80% of the Hamas tunnel networks are still undestroyed. So this idea that Israel is actually completely cleaning up the Gaza Strip as they like, not exactly true, although it has been reported that, what was it, was it 50 or 60% of the buildings on the entire Gaza Strip have effectively been leveled by... Israeli bombings, which shows you the real reason for this. It is very much a genocide in the sense, or an ethnic cleansing rather, not a genocide, that they're trying to push these people out. But the goal with the bombings isn't exactly to kill as many people as possible, which that's a side effect. It's literally to like think, just destroy all the buildings, level it out so they can come in and just start from scratch and just build it up anew. And because remember, there used to be settlers in Gaza, about 8,000 Israeli settlers in Gaza before a myriad of intifadas and risings up and diplomatic treaties and stepping in from the U.S. and whatnot. Now there's no settlers in Gaza, but now there are settlers in the West Bank. And that's part of why Hamas is so popular in Gaza and around Palestine, because Hamas is in power in Gaza, PLO is in power in West Bank. Which of those two places has settlers? The West Bank. 
So if you're going to look at it from that obvious perspective, I probably support Hamas too because they actually fixed the problem politically. So it's it's all very much falling into an unfortunate position as the likelihood of a ceasefire seems very, very far away from an American-Israeli perspective as the Americans, despite Biden calling Netanyahu a bad effing guy, apparently, he doesn't really seem to be willing to, I don't know, I feel like the U.S. has the resources to conduct regime change in Israel at this point. They just are not going to do that. Yeah, that's right. Um, Israel has declared a short-term victory. Naturally, uh, you know this is one of the successful Israeli news stories, allegedly, in Khan Yunus, the second big city that is being besieged by the IDF in the Gaza Strip. It's declared that 18 out of 22 Hamas brigades stationed in Khan Yunus have been destroyed or greatly demilitarized, so to speak, that they really need to reform at this point. And Khan Yunus, right, we've, we've spoken about how at the beginning of the conflict, it wasn't even, like the Khan Yunus siege, even if you check the Wikipedia page, only started, there's actually a Wikipedia page for this, allegedly, like the probably sourced by completely Israeli and pro-Israeli sources. It has begun only in December, so it actually took them two months to realize that even the second major Palestinian city allegedly held by Hamas needs to be completely surrounded and the siege need, you know, needs to be conducted properly. Gaza City, of course, is uh, mingled by, you know, it's just completely, uh, not completely controlled, but there are Israeli Israeli tanks, Israeli forces all throughout it. I, I would say like 80% of Gaza City, as you said, Conrad, is most, most buildings are destroyed or damaged very heavily, but there are also Israeli tanks all over the streets. It's not safe for any Palestinians and no one's really going to investigate amidst all these true Depths, which at this point, you know, reports are very, they're being, the reports all come from sort of third party journal sources. A lot of journals have been killed on the ground. So, but we're looking at almost 12,000 children dead, 200 children per day have been killed in this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Again, it's not safe on the very streets, like Israeli soldiers probably shooting indiscriminately at people passing by. There's curfews involved. Gaza City, again, the largest city, the largest Palestinian city in in Israel, like in in the actual territory of Israel and Palestine in general, has has been completely demoralized, has been made a, not just sent into the third world, but sent into this post-apocalyptic, has been created and turned into a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And now Khan Yunus, they're definitely doing the same to that. And yes, it's it's even worse, right, Conrad, when you look at the Rafa crossing and the and leaflets being thrown out. It's like, what exactly is the IDF doing? It hasn't even completed its sort of uh, demoralization strategy in Khan Yunus and, city, and Gaza City. And they're already looking further south, trying to push the Palestinians southwards, which only leads us to the conclusion that despite the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, despite the investigation currently ongoing and the Israeli lawyers actually preparing to give their defensive evidence in about two and a half weeks time before the court in South Africa, they're actually still continuing the operation of completely ethnically cleansing the Palestinians from, from the Gaza Strip entirely, you know, from, from north, from tip on the north to the south, completely pushing them into Egypt. And again, the Palestinians are not showing us that they're actually willing to leave. We've only seen roughly 35,000, you know, Palestinians actually head for that crossing in Rafah actually looking to to leave, and that's like a very small percentage of the population. The Palestinians understand that if they begin abandoning their own land, they will never get it back. They'll never see their homes again. They'll never see the land again, their farms, things like that. They'll be forever ostracized and forever, um, you know, forever sort of sanctioned to never return uh -huh. home again. So that's the that's the risk here. It's either death on your own land or it's life outside in Egypt as 
essentially renegades the second uh you can say biblically speaking it is like the second egyptian enslavement you see in the old testament but this is an enslavement by designers who will send you to a land which is already overpopulated egypt is it's not the richest country on earth it's probably worse off than mexico in certain places and there's there's nothing really prosperous waiting for the palestinians in egypt so all they have is what what they still control in palestine and gaza what they still own what they purchased with their own money what they've built with their own hands and israel is looking to take that away i mean this is the this is the most uh, unchristian dehumanizing strategy we've seen in recent years nothing like russia has been doing in ukraine frankly like no sort of real estate no territory has been taken from local ukrainians if anything they've actually kept all their rights that the russians have you know have not really breached since they've entered into the new smo zones and this is really showing us what war could be like if taken to the extreme by you know just let's just say anti-christian forces yeah the battle in gaza is really doesn't frankly doesn't seem like it's going to be dying anytime soon because israeli reports are indicating that not only are hamas reforming their battalions and brigades for military operations against the idf in north gaza uh, this is uh, Eyal hulata who was the head of the israeli national security council previously before the war started he commented to media he said we are hearing more, unfortunately, of the recovery of an insurgency in both central and northern Gaza. We're hearing more and more that Hamas are doing policing in northern Gaza and governing trade, and that is a very bad outcome. So the Israelis are seething that northern Gaza isn't an anarchic hellscape <laughs> entirely. I'm not sure why the fact that policing is happening is such a horrible thing, but I guess they just they don't want there to be a Palestinian society. So it makes sense that they completely don't want any kind of quote-unquote government running in any kind of Hamas or Palestinian name only. But in the midst of the U.S. strikes as well, there's only been about, I think it was only 40, 39 of the you know Iranian-backed militias have even died. Only that's how many fighters were killed. There were some more injuries, but most of those bases were evacuated. So a lot of these things, whether it's these strikes, whether it's Israel's victorious, you know, brigading about how well they're doing, a lot of it is fronting. Like a lot of it is PR, you know, it's not actually definitive victory because if it was truly definitive victory perhaps the u.s would be more in line with israel's idea of, of settling this but i think the u.s intelligence knows that this thing is this thing is far from over but moving away from the middle east we have to get into ukraine and russia and of course putin's recent comments have really been splashing the headlines putin says that russia needs to expand ukraine's demilitarized zone which basically just means pushing the line of contact farther back and i think this is a course coming in response to the ukraine getting uh, rm-70 vampires and other uh, new missile systems that are able to strike deeper into russia from deeper into ukraine itself so i think in many ways people are talking about how this is indicative of a possible spring kharkov offensive from the russians as i mean putin even directly cited the uh, big cargo plane carrying the Ukrainian POWs going down as a reason that the DMZ needs to be expanded. So, Dmitry, what are your thoughts on the Russian front line and its future position? I mean, this gives us an outline coming from the mouth of the, you know, the, the president, the chief commander of the Russian forces himself. It does give us a view, a view, I guess, an official view of the Russian Kremlin position. It's not just like a Russian general saying this or a random member of the Duma makes, saying something outrageous. So Putin or actually, Medvedev saying this. <laughs> or Medvedev <laughs> posting it on Telegram or tweeting it. Yeah, it's it's not something wild. Like it's not something said under the influence of alcohol. It's actually very sober. And in fact, it does make sense. It is like a very... 
I, I, I know people are not going to like this, but it is like a very positive outlook, a very positive perspective, Minsk-free sort of agreement here. A demilitarized zone is essentially what Minsk 1 and 2 attempted to create between Donetsk, Lugansk, and the Ukrainian forces, but of course they did not help Donetsk continue to be bombarded by Ukrainian forces over the span, you know, since 2014 and onwards, 2015, etc. We've still seen anti-Russian, anti-Donetsk, anti-Donbass action from Ukraine. But this 600-mile front line that Putin described, so he actually put a number on it. We're actually seeing specifics. My, I'm wondering, right, would this front line be beyond the current borders of Zaporozhye and Kherson and Donetsk, or are we talking about your Russian constitutional land in these particular oblasts actually being included in the demilitarized zone, so temporarily occupied by Ukraine. So if Putin, again, is alluding to this demilitarized zone being, say, the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast, Sumsk Oblast, like Kharkivsk Oblast, for example, which are technically not part of Russia as per the constitution, or would he actually include already allegedly Russian territory included in these particular territories? So the Russian push may be a lot deeper than we can imagine, right? We're looking at a retaking of Kherson. We're looking at an unprecedented taking of Zaporozhye. And yes, you're right. Spring offensive. It's, you know, at least definitely a summer offensive of 2024. This is on the, on the cards at the moment. And Russia only needs, I would say, two, three months to actually prepare, maybe even announce a preliminary mobilization. If we do see any call for mobilization in March, of you know, March 19th, 20th, when Putin is undoubtedly re-elected, right? And Putin made the statement prior to re-election. So can you imagine what what statements we're going to see in March? And then, of course, on Easter and just after Easter, on 9th of May, during the military parade in Russia, we, we definitely may see another call for mobilization, which would lead into this creation of the demilitarized zone. Because Conrad... The Ukraine isn't going to sit down on the, on the table. It's like Zelensky isn't going to win the, or I mean, there's probably not going to be any elections in Ukraine in April of this year, but Zelensky is not going to come to the table with Zaluzhny and Sirsky and actually discuss creating a demilitarized with Russia, not when it's acquiring these, you know, vampire missiles. The name is very, uh, you know, given the Hasidic elements in this particular conflict, the name is very apt, but these, you know, storm shadows, like these long range missiles, these you know, massive amounts of HIMARS, which there's probably over 40 HIMARS in the Ukraine right now. It has all this technology. The Ukraine is, and Abrams tanks, right? Let's just mention the big tech actually coming onto the ground, potentially F-16 fighters, fighter pilots being trained. The US, the Ukraine is not motivated at the moment in creating a demilitarized zone on its own allegedly constitutional territory. That would be a concession to Russia. That would be a concession to the Hawks, both in NATO and in the US, right? We have to consider that. And Zelensky, like he didn't just hold on to power this entire time by seceding to Russia's wishes. If anything, he's like painted himself as this massive strongman, this new Winston Churchill character who never sought peace with Hitler. And the new Hitler is allegedly Putin, you know, for good or for worse. But here Putin, yeah, again, putting his wishes, outlining them, this is the most... I guess this is the most aggressive statement we've seen from the president since uh, at least May Victory Day 2023. Uh, I guess this is really straightforward and we look for more information probably towards March when uh, when he actually wins that election hands down. Across the Ukrainian front line now, well, at least in Ukraine, not on the front lines yet, we're also seeing some of the first Abrams tanks that have been delivered from the United States, which again, we've been hearing about the Abrams tanks since honestly the first few weeks of the war. But they finally arrived, and what that really means is that in the next few weeks we're going to see our first video of a destroyed 
Abrams tank on the battlefield in Ukraine. And even in the videos, people are commenting about how huge the tank is, how huge of a heat signature it has, how it may be easier to hit with some of these drones. I don't know if they've installed the cope cages uh, on top of them like they have on some of the other tanks, but we're definitely going to see our first destroyed Abrams, which you know that the State Department is not going to be happy about the optics of that, despite the fact that, look, you send a bunch of tanks over there, some of them are going to lose in the battle. That's just how it goes. Even if you win, which they're not going to win. That's the other thing, of course. But even if they even if they did win, some of them are still going to get destroyed and they're going to be on video and get taken by the Russians and the Russians will be able to look at them. So that's going to happen very soon. We're going to post that video all over our socials when it comes out. So be sure to be sure to follow us there. But I mean, like we talked about with the expansion of the DMZ, the civilian shellings continued. Donetsk continues to be hit. You know, Belgorod continues to face I mean, I don't think those people, when they started this war started, they thought that they'd have this much, you know, air raid alarms every week and stuff going off. But instead, you know, here we are. So it's a tough situation. But despite the fact that, you know, those people on the front lines, it's really been a tough few years for them. Of course, since 2014 has been, it's been a tough time. It seems to be a tougher time for the Ukrainians right now, as there's all sorts of chaos. The alternative media, mainstream media, no one really knows what's happening behind the scenes with Zeluzhny with his potential replacement is Zelensky on the way out actually and the hype about Zeluzhny on the way out is just a you know an attempt to keep the dream alive for Zelensky you know there's rumors of Zeluzhny, Zeluzhny's replacement either being Budanov or Sirsky. Dmitry I'm wondering your thoughts on the Zeluzhny situation and the general state of Ukrainian leadership and personnel. Yeah, quite interesting. So a very, uh, a very upfront correspondent, a journalist, actually questions Zelensky, and they said, "Look, due to recent military failures, what are your perspectives? Is there going to be a replacement of general, uh, you know, commander in chief of the Ukrainian military, four-star general Zaluzhny?" And Valery Zaluzhny has been, you know, in the media a lot. If anything, he's this media-like figure. Besides Zelensky himself, you know, he's like the gray cardinal behind the scenes, allegedly. Despite the fact that he. Zaluzhny, I would just say my perspective is that Zaluzhny is in many cases this blown up, not just physically in his like, you know, big fat form physically, but in a media sense, he is this, uh, he is this persona that has been blown out of proportion. He, in fact, he doesn't have much of a history of any sort of military action. He's more of a staff general responsible for Ukrainian mobilization since 2014. There's no real evidence that he's ever taken part in any uh, upfront military action as a general or as an officer in Ukraine, even since the Donetsk-Lugansk rebellions in 2014. You know, he's always kind of stayed in the background and he actually came to prominence when he was made commander-in-chief by Zelensky personally in 2021, which makes us you know, believe that probably he has the same ties that Zelensky has to Kolomoisky and those Hasidic clans who he does meet up with. He He's famous. He's like, a, as I said, he's a media persona, Zaluzhny. He doesn't really have any achievements behind him, unlike this other character you mentioned, uh, Konrad Sirsky. General Sirsky is another major, an, an actual, like, you know, you can say he would have some acclaim behind him. He was responsible for Ukrainian defense of Bakhmut, which was held off against Wagner, you know, Prigozhin's Wagner and the Russian military for many, many months on end. So he was actually, he was the general powerless in the you know, field marshal powerless in this particular conflict. And uh, Sirsky was actually involved very heavily since 2014 in the Donbass war against Trelkov and some of the, and, you know, Zaharchenko and some of these other figures. So he actually has some acclaim and achievements behind him. Meanwhile, Zaluzhny, who the media keeps talking about, the looks 
unfortunately, the potential great cardinal he will turn turn against Zelensky. I don't know about that. Zelensky was placed into his position by Zelensky personally. He has been photographed with Rabbi Hasman and some of these other top Hasidic figures, as well as you know some Azov battalion figures. But so he he's kind of mixed into this particular. Um, Hasidic uh, cauldron very, very uh, swiftly and strongly. Now, Zaluzhny's history, he does look like he's more, again, not just associated with the Hasids in this particular elite formation, but he's also very much associated with the UK, maybe even MI6, if we can, you know, if we can kind of play placate what are the involvements of foreign you know co covert intelligence agencies in the ukraine zelensky very closely associated with the cia the chiefs the, the former chiefs of cia even the current chiefs of cia always visits zelensky personally speaks to him zaluzhny has been you know traveling to the uk traveling to brussels belgium the eu branch of nato he's been heavily involved with them since 2014 again always in the background always formulating planning something and now, again, the media all of a sudden, right, Conrad, this is why we're even speaking about Zaluzhny, is that the media story after the Zelensky interview has come around and they've said, look, Zelensky is, hasn't even named Zaluzhny. He just said, we're looking at changes in the near future, not just of one individual you know, alluding to Zaluzhny, but we're looking at changes of you know a whole a whole slew of staff members in order to keep the war effort fresh but we're not looking to demoralize anyone. We're not, you know, we need us to remain positive, says Zelensky. So... Why are CNN, Politico, Al Jazeera, you know, NBC News, etc., Washington Post, ABC News, they're all reporting that allegedly Zelensky is looking to have an internal revolution. I'm not too sure what is behind all these stories, but it's it's very interesting. If anything, I would say Zelensky may be orchestrating something moving into the Ukraine election. We're looking, maybe looking at an inside mini Maidan coup, perhaps. Maybe Zaluzhny will be replaced, or perhaps even Zaluzhny will come in and replace Zelensky in April. When Zelensky declares that the U.S., you know, the Ukrainian elections actually can't go ahead due to the conflict and the the fact that you know, a, a third of the country simply won't be allowed to vote because they can't bring any electoral proper ballots into Russian Russian-held territories. So we do need to take that into consideration. But Zaluzhny is a very interesting character, in my personal opinion, and you know, people don't have to share this, but I think Zaluzhny is definitely this mass media promoted psyop. Yeah, essentially to keep figures like General Sirsky, who has more ties with like say neo-Nazi elements within the Ukrainian military, he has actually been responsible for integrating his old battalion, Idar right sector into the Ukrainian military very heavily. And Zaluzhny is this like Hasidic, like uh Hasidic replacement for an actual like hawk, like a like a man's man, like a, a hawk's hawk figure of Sirsky. And Sirsky is you know, if Sirsky came to power, we'd definitely be looking at like a like a palace in front of like in charge of the Ukrainian third Hasidic Reich, if anything. So keeping him to the side, we're looking at all the news speaking about this fake Zaluzhny character. But look looking forward into the future, I think it's probably the big controversy around that April election, which most likely I would say won't be taking place in Ukraine. So will there be an internal revolution? I'm not sure, but we'll be looking out for the news because I think, if anything, it's a media psyop which is taking place at the moment, distracting us from the heavy Ukrainian losses which will come later in this year. There's actually been talk among very small but existing far-right party in Poland, as well as I think some, some right-wing characters in Hungary have openly been discussing referendums and votes like in their platforms for... For Hungary, Transcarpathia, for for Poland, for Galicia, and there's been maps published and everything, and it's been those things have gotten less and less blowback from the mainstream in these uh, Eastern European countries talking about these ideas. So I think as the government in Ukraine becomes less cohesive and becomes much clearer that these are just a bunch of warring factions with their specific 
gangs behind them and depending on who has more weapons stocked who's going to be the one to come out on top as that becomes the apparent reality of the ukrainian state i think uh, the idea of carving it up a little bit may seem more uh, may seem a little bit more realistic to even those that pledged to do everything they could to help ukraine retake crimea which we all know is not going to be happening at this point even polish politicians are admitting that now which if polls are admitting it i mean i don't think the balts will ever admit it but if the polls are admitting it you know we've we've really reached the we've reached the end of that rope but uh, before we move a little bit into the continent itself we have to talk about some of these betrayals of course we saw ecuador i believe send uh, russian weapons that russia had sent to them to ukraine i don't know how many ecuador had so not as big of a deal but greece which we know greece buys a lot of weapons for a country of only 10 million people they have a very large army, a very large air force, a very large force in general as they are basically to win electoral politics in Greece, being bellicose against Turkey and ramping up the military against a possible Turkish incursion is very much popular. Both sides do it in Turkey and Greece. It's it's good for both of their military industrial complexes, I'm sure, but well, especially the American one in this situation. But uh, Greece, again, before, even though they were in NATO, had always been the closest NATO ally, objectively speaking, to Russia. And in the past, Russia had given them weapons and whatnot, because again, Russia has had issues with Turkey. Much, Frankly, Russia has had much more issues with Turkey than Greece in the past, even recent past, with the issues in Syria. So despite the NATO situation, Turkey was also in NATO, so Russia didn't see it as an issue to perhaps arm Greece a little bit against the Turkish situation, but now Greece is sending those weapons to Ukraine. And again, I'm sure this was a hard decision to make, Even I mean, not that Mitsotakis cares, he probably hates Russia, but I'm sure it was a hard decision to make from an, from an economic and political perspective because the Greek people don't want anything to do with that. They're the only war that, again, they, the only thing they care about the military for is the Turkish question, not, not some nonsense in Ukraine. And the fact that Greece has done that, it's going to dramatically hurt, unfortunately, their relations with the Russians. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've seen this sort of trend continue where, uh, you know, countries like Georgia, Greece, smaller Orthodox nations around Europe, uh, including Bulgaria, Romania, have actually unfortunately sided with either Ukraine or NATO-esque politics, you know, for quite some time now, at least at least a decade, including, you know, agreeing with sanctions. And the only country that has been holding the line, you know, has been Vucic's Serbia to some extent, and even rhetorically Vucic's is the more EU-sided politician. But unlike the Prime Minister of Greece, he has been holding, you know, holding back somewhat and not, and not actually you know, retrieving that deposit of of faith that the serbian people have in russia and actually spending it all on and actually you're using it up wasting it on you know eu-sided nato-sided politics so that's quite it's quite hopeful at least maybe other countries will follow serbia's example and actually you know have a more neutral position if anything like a, a centrist position is more appreciated we've said this in the past you know not all orthodox bishops agree with the the special military operation that's fine but at least have a neutral centrist position on it rather than deliberately side with that of ukraine especially given all the uh, atrocities happening regarding the church but from even from political perspective like you don't need to be pro-Palestinian or pro-Zionist in this particular case, but don't automatically agree with Netanyahu-minded politicians. Like People just need some some holdback in, in, in these particular scenarios around the world, and which we're not necessarily seeing in Greece's case, not even in, in, in the case of Georgia, unfortunately. So these two Orthodox countries have been plagued by just inconsiderate, uh, inconsiderate attitudes towards foreign policy, which will come back to hurt them in the future. And, it'll, and they'll look very silly when Russia does come out inevitably on top 
of this conflict, be it in one year or two years, or even when the war breaks out into a complete world conflict. And when that is resolved, these were of those countries in the early history books will look just as silly as they looked maybe at the beginning of, or at the end of World War One, when their loyalties were, you know, kind of, you know, strung up between the Axis and the Allied powers, for example, or even World War Two when they looked quite silly after certain particular events and uh, certain participation in major conflicts of, you know, we just have to look back at history and kind of see that the 20th century did paint a future picture of where exactly these small Orthodox nations, what kind of role they can play and what the outcomes can be. The EU, of course, just gave Ukraine another $50 billion in the midst of U.S. waffling on future aid for Ukraine. The EU really picked up the slack. I don't know how much, I don't know what they're going to do in all of this. They're totally running out of funds to give Ukraine. They're running out of, you know, they're reaching the end of their rope economically. And now, like, like, like I said before, with the Suez Canal being way, way, way less busy than it usually is, they're eventually going to start experiencing the consequences of the supply chain crisis as well. So this $50 billion, it may be the last big hurrah from the European Union towards the Ukraine effort, because I don't know if the current institutions and the current leaders will be the same leaders in the next few months when the EU will have a chance to give them more money. So, and if there's a big shakeup like that, the justification for even more money is going to be is going to be a tough sell. But as we move into the European Union itself proper, we got to talk about Germany and the AFD, which we've been talking about the AFD a decent amount on all of these episodes because they've been surging in the polls. Germany is about to possibly elect, you know, its first real right-wing government since since Hitler. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is that it looks like they're probably going to get banned by the powers that be, by the German Supreme Court, by the ruling parties are going to be, you know, instituting investigations into them. They're already basically, they've already been under perpetual investigation. Like the federal police have full domain to do whatever they want and surveil the AFD. They've had that for, I think, years now. But the, the new line coming from the German establishment isn't just that they're racist, they want to deport all these foreigners. We saw, of course, Dimitri, you mentioned them last week, all of these libtard rallies against, you know, the AFD and how we can't go back to fascism and we're, you know, we're just one election away from Hitler too. But now the big line is that the AFD itself is basically just a Russian puppet party. And that, of course, is not true at all. But it really, they, they know that this works. They're running with this playbook because it worked in Austria. The Austrian Freedom Party was a very popular right-wing government, you know, basically the AFD equivalent in Austria. Austria is much more conservative than Germany. They were in power and they were doing some great things. And of course, they basically got honeypotted by a, a sort of a sting operation of somebody posing as a Russian, you know, trying to do business with them and, you know, help them out. And they ended up a you know, big scandal. They ended up getting voted out of power. They're about to win again. They may have even won the election again. So look how long, look how long that worked out. But they saw that it worked in Austria. So they're doing you know, this Russian influence thing. And the, the main line is that Vladimir Sergienko is a Ukrainian-born assistant to one of the AFD members of parliament, Eugene Schmidt. And apparently he's in some capacity been linked to the FSB. The idea is that he visited Russia in early 2023 and tried to create legal action that would delay tank deliveries by a few months from Germany to Ukraine. And Again, this all seems fairly tenuous if you kind of read the Der Spiegel investigations and everything, but it's being totally, it's not even that new of a story, but it's being totally splashed all over the German headlines and now all over German TV because they're trying to get the AFD banned and kicked off the ballot for this Russia stuff, which, you know, here we are 2024 and we're still talking about Russia stealing elections. Yeah, it's completely maniacal. And this connection with the Trump presidency of 2016 onwards is is an apt one. And not just the Freedom Party in Austria, but even 
Merkel's pro-German policies, right? And Merkel, if anything, was pro-German energy-wise, looking for trade agreements, building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Russia. She was accused of being pro-Russian. The fact that she could fluently speak Russian and at meetings, you know, she would, you know, speak Russian with Putin. Putin, of course, could speak German as well, but Merkel's Russian was actually better than Putin's German. And they've actually accused Merkel, who was an actual liberal and brought in all these immigrants as a pro-Russian as well back in the day. So these people are maniacs, right? They're looking to destroy the German nation from the from within and without as well, provoking German anti-German action by you know, Russian international policy, right? There's all the kinds of provocations around Kaliningrad and the Baltic. There's, they're always looking to destroy the German people by actually involving them in a, in a hot as well as con cold conflict with the Russian people. This Germanic-Russian alliance, which we've seen kind of formulate in the past, they're not going to allow that to take place because the Russian and German people are ethnically, culturally very, very similar. And even religiously speaking, Germans have always been very recipient to Orthodox Christianity, at least on an uh, intellectual, even spiritual level, I would say. Like, uh, you know, it's very visible. We spoke about this with Jim Cheshire's. Uh, the Baltic Germans have, you know, very much invested in Orthodox Christianity quite heavily over the last 200 years, and the fruits of that are very evident. But even the actual mainline Germans, again, very conservative people. There is, you know, German conservatism is on the rise. But again, they will accuse parties like the AFD of actually siding with pro-Hitlerian elements. You know, uh, we're not even going to mention the Royce party. This is all the conspiracy theories and ooga booga, like, um, you know, allegedly like coup-related accusations, which, you know, th these people are criminally investigated now by, by Germany, by the inside state. But this country, which is essentially one of the two pillars, one of the, I guess you could say one of the two Masonic pillars holding up the European Union alongside France, is now being audited internally. They're clearing out any resistance to this. I would say not even pro-Russian, right, Conrad? Because we don't want to kind of play up to these narratives that they're putting out. But even pro-European, pro-pro-white, pro-German, it's this pro-German position. They're actually looking to clean that up at the moment. It's an internal auditing process within Germany, and they know no assistance will come from the outside. There is no pro. European country, uh, except maybe even Russia, but Russia's actually too busy at the moment fighting an actual hot conflict in Ukraine to actually assist any of these right-wing parties in Europe itself. So at the moment, the globalists actually, and yes, we can mention them, the globalists have complete authority and they have leeway to actually clean up and actually, you know, impose sanctions on AFD politicians, investigate people like Prince Royce, or even, uh, you know, YouTubers like Martin Sellner, right? Like uh, German-Austrian influencers who are actively involved in pro-German, pro-Austrian politics. They can actually shut these people down actively on the ground and there won't be any resistance. There won't be any outcries. You know, if they, if they could shut down Julian Assange, they can shut down these right-wing people. There's a lot less sympathy for them from especially, uh, you know, people from the third and the second world who really don't like pro-white politicians in the first place, pro-German politicians. So unfortunately, there will be, a, I would say, a line of political detainees, we would say political martyrs in from Germany at the moment. And Europe is very much on these crossroads now, ideologically speaking, because again, if this continues for several more years, possibly decades, and they really do shut down the conservatives in these particular places, Europe may be heading for not just the, the demographic crisis, but also a crisis of culture and ideology moving forward. And that's very bad considering the third world war is just looming on the horizon, unfortunately.
that's that's real and across all of europe there's a lot of anxiety of course migration is really still despite all of the wars going on america and europe the issue of migration every year every week there's just some other horrible we see in america illegal immigrants beating up cops in new york in europe we hear these horrible stories of, of rapes in italy of people getting stabbed of course in ireland we all remember the children that were stabbed by that algerian and the fact is that that combined with the rah-rah attitude these governments are taking against Russia, it's both legitimizing Russia against the government because the people are witnessing the Great Replacement being perpetrated against them as they speak. And they're like, okay, so these people are perpetrating the Great Replacement and they hate Russia. People aren't so much becoming pro-Russia, but they're very much becoming ambivalent about being anti-Russia, which I think the Russians would take it either way. <laughs> That's they, They're just sick of the... The Russian government is actually, they treat the demonization of the Russian people worldwide very seriously. I was able to gather that when I was in Russia. It's something that the higher level people I talk to, they, they take it extremely seriously. And they really want to be building goodwill between America and Western Europe again, between the two countries. But Europe, thankfully, we're hearing talk of, of Dexit, you know, German exit of the European Union, which if that happened, that would, the European Union would be over entirely. But, but in a slightly less dramatic form, we're seeing the return of low-grade insurgency among in, in Corsica from Corsican separatists. The FLNC, uh, which is the National Liberation Front of Corsica, they are a sort of an insurgent uh, paramilitary group that fights the French government. And again, Corsica is the most autonomous region of all of France. It has its own autonomy and has even in 2023 been offered more autonomy. But these groups, you know, Corsican nationalists, which is a fairly popular position among native Corsicans, you know, they don't consider themselves French. They consider French people moving to Corsica to be colonization. And they say they have no, they don't feel that they have any legal way to remedy the fact that more and more French people move to Corsica. And they feel that eventually Corsican identity will just be just be diluted. They've been releasing speeches, sort of IRA style with their masks and guns in front of their flags, you know, making declarations and disavowing Macron and whatnot and calling for full Corsican independence. And I think it's really funny when you look up the FLNC, their little Wikipedia box, it shows, you know, their allies and opponents. We like to talk about this sometime on the show. And it's like allies, Qaddafi Libya government, IRA, the Basque region. And then it's like opponents, the government of France, ISIS, the government of Italy, NATO. <laughs> and so it's, uh, I think it's an interesting situation going on there because most people probably don't even realize Corsica is part of France. You know, Sardinia is part of Italy. Corsica is part of France. If Corsica were to become its own country, that would be a fairly interesting development. But, you know, France, I think all of these European countries, they're, you know, very much against all of the separatism. But France does not stand with Serbia on the Kosovo issue. So, you know, I don't see why they should expect people to stand with them if this Corsica thing escalates. Yeah, that's right. Like, if if Corsica does take this Maltese scenario going forward, you know, like I would say, like a Malta, like a Malta esque Kosovo scenario. Um, I'm not sure exactly who in the EU will support that, but again, it would be, it will be in line with this like globalist perspective of well, every country, every particular nation or region deserves you know some some ability to separate or at least you know become independent. So again, they would have I guess some sort of liberal libertarian ideological backing there. So you know it's completely justifiable, even if Corsica necessarily wouldn't be as conservative as probably some of these other 
places like, uh, you know, you'd say Respublika Srpska is probably following the same route, right? Seeking independence from the greater body and trying to disconnect itself. But again, there's at least some historical reasoning behind this. Meanwhile, Corsica probably, I'm not sure what kind of uh, justification it would have historically, unlike Respublika Srpska, of actually disconnecting itself from Italy and from those particular governments, right? Because again, uh, Corsica, the history is, I would say, uh, rich but uh the, the richness for most people only goes as far as like popular figures maybe like napoleon right coming from corsica and you know b becoming the emperor of france something like that so most people would probably not be aware and how how much would they support this sort of movement if it would go viral we're not too sure but you know like let's just speak speak quite frankly here kosovo nobody really knew in the west about kosovo either but politic politicians within the u.s actually pushed kosovo independence to such an extent where now people actually you know speak about kosovo independence like they're experts since the 1990s very uh very adamantly in western countries despite the fact that kosovo historically is was always a part of serbia uh serbia proper and Respublika Srpska, i think hopefully will move in the same direction where eventually people will realize hey Respublika Srpska maybe should have a bit more independence than it does have now administratively and e even legally and hopefully we'll see the movement um, towards actually serbian reunion uh going forward as far as I'm aware, the ideology, I guess, and the nationalism behind Corsican identity, maybe some French bros can correct me here. I'm not an expert. They seem to be calling back to the Corsican Republic, which was existed from 1755 to 1769. And I guess 1769 was when they came under the monarchy of, of France. And they want to preserve the Corsican language and they want to reopen the University of Court, which I guess was closed by the French army when... Corsica became part of France, which I guess they view as a critical cultural institution. So very similar, it sounds to me, to the Irish struggle. That sounds to me probably the most analogous situation. Although within the FLNC, there is both right-wing and left-wing factions. So it seems that it's one of those, you know, the nationalism is uniting them against the common enemy, and then they'll do politics afterwards, which also is very similar to Quebec. Of course, we see Quebec separatism rising very fast, of course. And all the left-wing parties that some of the more left-wing ones were pro-Ottawa, pro-Anglo, they've been falling in the polls for the more, while they're still left-wing, the nationalist uh, Quebecois separatist parties are becoming the most popular parties there. So separatism is very much rising worldwide. And of course, there's no exception here in the United States. Of course, in the great state of Texas, Texit, Texit has never been on more people's lips than it is right now. And the fact that the border situation is unfolding the way it is, is just increasing that. It must be very frustrating. It's probably the reason why the Republican Party, the GOP, are balking on putting it on the Republican ballot this March, despite the fact that the Texas Nationalist Movement achieved well over the necessary 101,000 signatures. They got almost 140,000 signatures, had them validated, submitted to the state party, and they're just disobeying their own rules because the people of Texas, again, should be given a chance to vote if they're registered as Republicans on whether or not they want Texas to reestablish itself as an independent nation. And the fact that this border situation is going the way it has and that the federal government and the Biden administration have literally never been more unpopular, the Republican Party knows that it would probably do better than it might normally do. You know, maybe up to 30 plus percent, maybe even 40 percent of people might, that vote on that ballot might vote for that. And that would be so dramatic to the point where the federal government may need to respond. And it sounds to me that the state party are cowardly in that regard. So we'll be following that closely, of course. But I think one of the most egregious things there is, of course, also this bill going through the Senate from Senator Lankford, which has been lambasted, of course, by all sorts of people. Trump being no exception. The bill purports to allow 8,500 illegal immigrants basically to cross per day 
as well as it provides what is it like 20 billion for the border and then like 14 something billion for israel another billion for ukraine you know so it frees up the ukraine israel funding and then gives some stuff to the border but it has all of these insane restrictions about the actual border itself, so I'm going to read Donald Trump's response to the bill itself. He says, Only a fool or a radical left Democrat would vote for this horrendous border bill, which only gives shutdown authority after 5,000 encounters a day, when we already have the right to close the border now, which must be done. The bill is a great gift to the Democrats and a death wish for the Republican Party. It makes the horrible job that de- takes the horrible job the Democrats have done on immigration and the border, absolves them, and puts it all squarely on the shoulders of Republicans. Don't be stupid. We need a separate border and immigration bill. It should not be tied to foreign aid in any way, shape, or form. The Democrats broke immigration and the border. They should fix it. Make America great again. And, I mean, I agree. The fa- you can't have some absurd bill that's just going to cement so much of the horrible things we're seeing right now. And, of course, Greg Abbott had a press conference with 13 other governors. I saw Greg Gianforte of Montana, Sarah Huckabee Sanders of Arkansas. Others were there. And they, they talked about the continued effort of the Texas military. And I've seen some of the, again, it's an Eagle Pass and whatnot. I don't know if it's been expanded outside of the Eagle Pass. I hope it has. If not, that needs to be coming down the pipe. But they've really reinforced it. They have these big containers set up and they have fence posts hanging over the containers with razor wire everywhere. Like there is no getting over those containers at that part of the border. So the job has been done there. The question is, is there a will to expand that? And is this going to continue through the election and help get people out to vote? Hopefully it does. And hopefully if it peters out that people remember this, because immigration is why Trump won in 2016. And immigration is going to be why Trump wins again in 2024 if he wins, which I believe that he is going to. I'm saying that on the show now. I believe Trump is going to win. I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm also predicting that after 2024 elections will never be the same again, even in mechanics. I think there's going to be such a dramatic shift that this is going to be a real mark. And everyone, of course, of course, 2016 is a mark in the history books, but this is going to be kind of a, a big next stage in the, in the MAGA revolution, because I think quote unquote, American democracy has, has run its course for lack of a better expression. I think Trump's comments are really on point here. Americans should not be paying for their own border security with the blood of Palestinian children and other Middle Eastern children paid by, and even Ukrainian, Russian children, or Russian people actually, you know, included in this funding bill. So I think that's probably the right approach, right? American safety should be first. And we, we saw that the stats were actually quite scary at this presentation at Eagle Pass, Texas, where you mentioned 13 governors actually took place alongside, you know, joined Greg Greg Abbott in this massive press conference. And the deputy director of the Department of Public Safety in Texas, Mr. Martin, actually stated that in just one year, 458 million lethal doses of fentanyl were seized by the Texas authorities, which is enough fentanyl and enough narcotics to actually kill the entire American population in terms of actually give them an overdose. So we're talking about seizing such quantities of drugs. It's just it's not it's not fathomable actually <laughs> on a level. I had to check these stats and yes, it's true. Every every year, millions millions of doses of fentanyl and other yeah, illicit material is being seized on that border. It's not just children, weapons trafficking, criminal activity, but also actual active threats which will destroy not just uh, individuals but also families. The social structure of America will come undone if these borders are not managed properly. And so. Uh, he, this is the first primal priority of just uh, conservative Americans, liberal Americans alike. I think it's just in the interest of all Americans, personally speaking, and all Christians should be pro-strong border security. This is 
completely unquestionably. And he sort of calls for you know, Protestant statements such as, well, the apostles would have opened the borders. We need to allow for these people to come in. This is, you know, this is all uh, buffoonery. It's all prelist. And it doesn't make any sense, frankly. It, if anything, it's, it's completely placing the lives of Americans at risk. And, you know, a lot of people, Conrad, were describing like, yeah, Trump's comments were very strong for the border, but Trump himself did not arrive at the border. And a lot of the people were stating who were actually in attendance at the conference were like, it's like a Trump rally, but without Trump. So the spirit of Trump, right, the spirit of political Trumpism, mm -hmm. not the spirit of republicanism. It's like this, the actual, it's almost like Trump is like the new figurehead. The Republican Party has sold itself out, generally speaking, in this uh, Ukraine-Russian conflict over the last few years, frustrated a lot of Americans domestically. And now the Israeli Netanyahu question. I mean, people, like I'm sure the average American probably doesn't even know why, why exactly so many children are dying. They can't avoid the news, right? You can't hide all the losses of the local people in Palestine being killed by the Netanyahu, Netanyahu government, there's no real excuses. They can't side of that sort of thing. So they rather actually take on take on Trump as like this figurehead leader, as this sort of new Caesar character who they can actually follow and who actually has a conscience, right? A businessman uh, with a proper conscience in this particular question. And it's being elucidated in this Texas security conflict moving forward. And Joe Biden, no matter what he does, no matter what kind of bills he proposes, and whatever the Democrats move forward, it won't be as good of a solution as Trump's. And it's not just build a wall at this point, it's literally close the border. Like it's 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 escalated and appropriately so because the mismanagement has been very evident over the Biden administration. So I think this is like a great thing. And we saw, you know, people from South Dakota, North Carolina, Washington State. Pennsylvania, like truckers, farmers, just what, like what we saw in France and Germany, right? These people from the rural areas, people who actually work on the land itself, have come out in support, have driven their massive vehicles, brought their families over, you know, for picnics, which just support in the press conference, supporting Greg Abbott and the people of Texas. It's just a great um, pre-electoral, I would say, uh, sort of premonition, this, this uh, gathering of like-minded people who will actually... And, you know, this is scary, right? Because this is the biggest, I would say, right-wing conservative gathering since January 6th, I would say, is, is around this border issue in Texas. So, in fact, I think the globalists and the people behind the scenes, the people running the show, the people who, you know, people like Anthony Blinken, right, of that sort of heritage, they are shaking in their boots because they're seeing Americans actually wake up, or at least a, a sizable portion of percentage of Americans uh, rising up to the issue. Well, speaking of people of that heritage, probably the most egregious display of, I don't even know what to call it, chutzpah, I guess, these days, was when Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, he is on the Senate Immigration Committee, subcommittee, and they were, you know, pressing and questioning Department of Homeland Security Chief Alexander Mayorkas, of course, Jewish, and, you know, Hawley was excoriating him pretty hard, said he should be ashamed of himself, he's a disgusting human being, what he, how he's handling the border, he should immediately resign, all these sorts of things. And then Mayorkas, you know, after acting very offended and saying he's insulted, he then just quickly responds that, I mean, truly the chutzpah, he said, well, I'm very offended that you would say that because I am the son of Holocaust survivors and I am Jewish and my heritage, you know, he's basically just invoking the narrative. He doesn't even have to explain it. He believes the narrative is so saturated in the Western American imagination that just saying that he descends from Holocaust survivors and that he's Jewish and that his people were victimized in the past, that therefore... He can't be held accountable for something like the Great Replacement or the horrible things happening on the border because because he is related to Jewish people. So I guess to him that makes perfect sense, but it's it's quite ridiculous to say the least. 
it's anti-Semitic to not want thousands and thousands of Central and South Americans to pour into your country and replace your race. So it's uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty tough situation with the Biden administration. Of course, Mayorkas, Jewish, Janet Yellen, uh, Jewish, you know, head of the Treasury, you know, all of the most, some of the most important, you know, when it comes to, you know, people say like the, the anti-Semitic conspiracies behind, behind Jews and the Great Replacement and the anti-Semitic conspiracies behind Jews and banking, it's like, well... The, the 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 two people with the most power over those sorts of things in America are Jewish, so I don't I don't think that's a conspiracy theory, but it's a really tough situation. And unfortunately, as much as we love what we're seeing down on the border and these truckers and everybody rolling up, it, it's really great to see. The, the most important thing, like you said, Dimitri, is its premonition before this election, because unfortunately, these governors can can only do so much and will only do so much. None of them have the political will of Trump, and Trump is not in office right now. So we need to do what we can on immigration, at least, to get Trump in office, as far as that is concerned, because here in Texas, it is not a tenable situation, I can tell you that. Yeah, and speaking of uh, tenable situations on borders, right, let's, let's return to the Middle East, or at least to Africa, right? So the the cradle of mm. mankind, as it's called by uh, our evolutionary scientist friends who don't like speaking about genetics, <laughs> but still mention biology, right? In a broad sense, but yes, Ethiopia, right? We we mentioned it very briefly in regards to the Red Sea and actually being one of the countries that potentially could be involved in the future Black Swan event with the U.S. UK navies involved. But here on the some Somalian border, uh, Ethiopia, there's there's been some some deaths, some killings, some murders, which is never a good thing. We know demons are involved in these particular events in terms of like working the passions of people. But six lane Ethiopians were actually found on the Somalian border, including women, men, killed by gunshots. Uh, again, who exactly is responsible? Is it like Somalian security guards or some local pirates? The reason why this is important is because, again, this is on the border of Somalia and Ethiopia, not Somaliland, with which Ethiopia has organized the treaty. And we have seen counter-signaling from you know Western news sources stating that, well, this agreement with Somaliland is, is completely, you know, like, let's forget Black Hawk Down and Mogadishu and all of these issues, right? So Somalia isn't re really even a functional country, like in today's world, and no one really can even claim that. But nevertheless, it just, when Ethiopia wants to build a bilateral proper relationship with Somaliland, essentially an independent, you know, we're speaking about separatism, right, and borders, Somaliland is probably the most functional part of Somalia, and you know, Ethiopia wants to build a relationship with it, being the largest Christian country, doesn't really need to build a relationship with any radical Muslims or pirates for that matter. So, and now Ethiopia is being pressured on its own border. At the same time, it's experiencing a massive food crisis. And there are claims that there's just crazy articles you go and read and you say, you know, these, these Western sources like, well, Ethiopia really doesn't need to build a relationship with Somaliland because well, since it became landlocked, its GDP rose by two or three times like 200, 300%. And I'm just like, what? It, yeah, it rose from complete, from a state of complete poverty to perhaps more acceptable poverty by worldly standards. Even today, a lot of Ethiopians are actually suffering from famine, malnourishment, things like that. And yes, they do want access to that Red Sea. They want access to world trade, imports, outports, without having to, you know, th those ports in Djibouti, which essentially are globalist controlled tax havens, right? Essentially you're paying, the Ethiopians are paying a very heavy price for exporting and importing a lot of their goods through that particular territory. They want a more equitable outcome and building that relationship with Somaliland is important. But now, yes, on the border of Somalia, uh, murders are taking place. 
And what will this mean now that Somalia has already declared openly that Ethiopia is breaching international law by recognizing Somaliland by working bilateral treaties with this particular state? You know, Somaliland can be described as this Respublika Srpska type entity in on that horn of Africa. But again, very, very rough looking for Ethiopia. Ethiopia is looking for a breakout and looking for a breakthrough, I would say culturally as well as domestically speaking. It's looking for a solution, especially now that the world is really, it's becoming really tough on trade. I think it's trying to resolve any domestic issues it has before the breakout of World War Three and before the disruption of world trade, Conrad, because once once the hot war breaks up, people don't realize it's not just the nuclear bombs that will be raining down on various countries and strategic places and you know tanks and planes. It, the world trade will be disrupted. There'll be mass famine, just like we read about in the book of Revelations, right? So, and Ethiopia will be one of those, you know, if it doesn't sort itself out very soon in terms of actually working out its trade, working out, uh, you know, food for its own nation and people, they will be one of those places which suffers as soon as those humanitarian aid packages will stop coming in. If a great war breaks out, I think the Ethiopian politicians who actually care about their people understand this. Hence, these drastic bilateral actions with Somalia and you know even moving even their forces up to Eritrea. I think this is all factored into the massive equation. It's it's all part of this puzzle. Oh, it's just crazy how on the show initially we were it's black it was Black Sea Watch and we're still watching the Black Sea. It's really turned into Red Sea Watch now. So you know it's the. We're right at the center of the universe, around Jerusalem and near the Euphrates and the Nile and whatnot. So it's 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 great stuff. This is this is why we love this show. But Ethiopia, this is probably one of those situations where, again, up until now, especially since October seventh, and even before that, with with the Ukraine situation, it was almost identical. Not exactly different players aligned with different ways, and people made their decisions at when the Ukraine thing broke out, of course. But this is probably the first situation where, Dimitri, you may agree that we probably disagree with what you could call like the axis of resistance, like the Arab world and their perspective on this issue, because they all seem to be siding with Mogadishu and, you know, the Arab League releasing statements, of course, supporting the actual Somali government, of course, our beloved Ilhan Omar here in America coming out as a full-on agent of Mogadishu here in, here in the States, giving, giving Somalians a voice against Somaliland. But... I have to say, Somalia is a literal failed state. Somali land is the only not failed part of the state. Ethiopia has 120 million people. They need access to the sea. They're a Christian country. I think, you know, I don't think, I think I'm all in with Ethiopia on this one. You know what I mean? Like, I think, you know, maybe, maybe there's some Israeli loose connection like a lot of people have, but I think this seems like a pretty clear situation that if the U.S. was actually involved, was actually in the business of quote-unquote doing the right thing, they would broker this to where Ethiopia gets what it wants and Somaliland at least gets some kind of autonomy and something from, from Somalia. But the rest of Africa isn't looking too much better either. ECOWAS, which is the military economic union of the East African states, it's basically collapsing as Burkina Faso and others, basically all of the countries that have aligned with Russia and the Sahel region are leaving ECOWAS and are cooperating militarily with themselves. Chad, actually, the country of Chad, as I predicted years ago in my Africa article on the World War Now Substack, Chad has effectively, the, the, the dictator there realized that he was going to get cooed out, so he just joined the Russian side preemptively. And, of course, so Africa is very much, seems to be going in the favor of the BRICS multipolar world, of course. And... Going a little bit north, of course, we saw the U.S. actually slap Kosovo on the wrist. We talked about Srpska and whatnot earlier. Kosovo, the authorities and the local Muslims have not been 
treating the Serbs very well in the, in the United States is, is not having that. So we're going to hit a few bullet points here because we're getting close to the end, but we still have a few real things we want to talk about. Other big news, Imran Khan in Pakistan sentenced to 10 years in prison, which I don't know how that's going to work. I wouldn't be surprised if they break him out. I'm sure he may get out earlier in some capacity, but they just know that whenever this guy gets out and gets some momentum behind him, he's coming back into power. And they just, they're trying to prevent that from happening as much as possible. Because Imran Khan, he really is, it's the Trump of Pakistan. It's one of the most analogous situations, but much more dramatic because it's a shitty fake Muslim country <laughs> where they just arrest you and they border Afghanistan. So it's going to be a little more brutal than over here in the, over here in the first world. But finally, I guess moving away from the world, well, transitioning from uh, the world of bombs and politics and treaties to, you know, the world of, of priests and bishops. Uh, we we see some, we've had some discussions on deaconesses in the church. We're going to talk about that, and we've seen, unfortunately, both the developments in Ukraine are are I'd say demonic. Yeah, of course. The uh, you know recent news has shown us that the persecution has not exactly stopped. And persecution we've seen in in its political aspects as well as its in its military aspects. So direct, you know, World War Two era strikes on churches monasteries, things like that. The Dormition Monastery in the Donetsk Oblast, this is the you know, one of the original monasteries. It's 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 quite a long name. We call it the Dormition Monastery, but its official name is uh, the Saviors Saint Nicholas Dormition Monastery of Donetsk. <laughs> so it's, it literally is dedicated to one feast day, the Savior Christ and Saint Nicholas, the miracle worker. So, you know, free, <laughs> I'm not sure how many feast days it has per year, but this monastery was set up by Elder Zosima of Donbass, who we mention quite, quite often. He is one of the, the recent prophets, the clairvoyant elder, who will be very canonized very soon in, in Eastern Ukraine. And all Ukrainians venerate him very, very heavily. He only passed away in 2002, I believe, and naturally one of his monasteries, he you know, openly spoke out against this particular uh, Ukrainian separatism very early on in his uh, ministry in the 1990s, you know, teaching his monastics as well as lay people who came to him that Ukraine and Russia need to have a friendly relationship moving forward culturally as well as politically. And you are one people, which of course, Ukrainian nationalists and the you know, Bandera people really hate that. So what happens, right? This monastery is bombed this week. It, uh, a drone flew over the monastery and actually dropped a bomb onto it. This is a Ukrainian drone, given that the monastery at the moment is in... It, it used to be at the beginning of the SMO, and in general since 2014, it was in like no man's land for a very long time, but at the moment it's in so-called Russian-occupied SMO territory, so it's actually under Russian protection. And there hasn't been any bombardment next to this monastery for a long time now, but yes, the Ukrainians have dropped a drone bomb onto it, So, and the Hiram Monk John, who was the head kid of the monastery was sent to hospital from the from the explosion shrapnel as well as the explosion itself actually the bomb almost landed on him personally so almost we nearly had a priest actually you know priest actually outright killed by a ukrainian bomb i mean this is not the news we want to we want to hear from ukraine but unfortunately this is exactly what's happening and it's one, one of the oldest monasteries in donbass to begin with i mean not not, not the oldest but in terms of having a direct spiritual uh, connection to a recent living saint it's it's quite respected in that capacity and you know we'd see more degeneracy coming from within ukraine itself even though in most peaceful regions uh the ocu was based in kiev and the ocu of course is led by the false much bolton Bivini, who we like to call Sergey, and so Sergey has announced this is his layman name, and since he's never been he's never been promoted to bishop legally, his name might as well be Sergey to this day. So, false Metropolitan Epiphany removes Alexander Nevsky, this famous 
well, most beloved Russian prince saint, and even globally in Orthodoxy, he is regarded as one of the most prominent Russian miracle-working saints. They removed him from the from the Orthodox calendar because, well, he's, he's too much of a pro-Russian saint. This is reported by OrthoChristian.com, and even Epiphany mentioned that, yeah, there are some churches in Ukraine, even under the schismatics, which are dedicated to St. Alexander Nevsky, but we're going to need to consider, you know, keeping him in those particular churches so they can have their own feast days and things like that and local celebrations. But we'll be removing him generally from the calendar because he's too much of a pro-Russian saint. Mind you, St. Alexander Nevsky was the literal prince of Kiev during his life in the 1200s, despite not ever living in Kiev. Unfortunately, when Alexander Nevsky was a teenager, Kiev was destroyed by Batu Khan and the Mongols very early on. And so when Alexander Nevsky grew up, he inherited that title of Prince of Kiev and the chief prince of all Russians, but he never lived in Kiev because Kiev was turned into ruin by the Mongol invaders. And so Alexander Nevsky mostly ruled around Novgorod and Vladimir Suzdal in that land. And his descendants would, of course, build up Moscow as the new capital of the Russians. And so this is why this association of Ukrainians hating, notice they hate Elder Zosima, they hate St. Alexander Nevsky, they dislike this heritage of this Ukrainian-Russian historical connection is really what they're after, and they're looking to remove it in the memories of people. You know, we saw early in 2022, they removed a, a big monument, a very you know an Orthodox statue to Alexander Nevsky from Kiev itself. These monuments, these memories are being erased. This is um, you know similar to what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians. It's a genocide, not on a physical level. Sometimes it is on a physical level, but on a cultural, on a psychological level, psychological genocide, a brainwashing of the Ukrainian people. But look, the persecution continues. Even like today, as we were recording the podcast, there was a release of a photograph online. Again, uh, we just need to certify exactly what took place. We'll probably report it on next week. Metropolitan Longin of the Banchen Monastery in Western Ukraine. It's a very dangerous place. His uh, monastery has released a photograph of him and he looks beaten up. He has black eyes, bruised face. I mean, these he was probably assaulted by Ukrainian nationalists of some sort because again, there are no Russians where the bunch in monastery is. It's a completely, you know, right-wing right sector as a battalion controlled monastery. And his monastery has been raided. So Metropolitan Longin is again in trouble and he's had heart, you know, issues with his heart recently. I mean, this is just tragic. Why are bishops being beaten up in Ukraine? Uh, isn't this supposed to be a place where Christians have can worship freely and venerate um, completely without discrimination? You know, despite the fact that there's so many denominations existing in Ukraine, to this day we're seeing uh, persecution quite actively by the Zelensky government. It's hypocritical and it's frankly just disgusting. We know who's behind this, right? So let's not hold any delusions. But Metropolitan Longin, let's pray for him at the moment. You know, Conrad, you mentioned the Deaconess debate, which we spoke about with Jim Jatros on our podcast, guys, go check that out. It was actually quite in-depth. We covered you know, what our particular thoughts were, because this is in the US, you know, there's no persecution happening, but there are these internal boilings of, you know, novelties being brought to the forefront, you know, certain transformations behind the scenes, certain people want to push certain new ideas, kind of masking them as old. And so we see this new feminist outrage in the church, allegedly in the English-speaking Church of America. Yeah, it was unfortunate. We're not going to, we don't need to spend too much time on it, but the Ancient Faith Radio Ministry, which is under the Antiochian Archdiocese of America, they had, it was sort of a documentary, which mostly an audio documentary, not much, there really wasn't much video going on. Each, there was, had six parts and each part had just a slide that the audio was speaking over. And it was about the, the historical reality of deaconesses and the question of their re-implementation. And look, I'm not going to say it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. Metropolitan Saba spoke very well and clearly expressed that there's really no 
need for female deacon for deaconesses and that female deacons will never be a thing. Of course, Father John Whiteford called in at the very end and, you know, made sure that everybody was on the right page. He really set things straight, which was, I'm glad he was able to call in. But the whole problem with all of it was the fact that you gave these people a platform. You let all of these crazy, there's like at least three of the female academics that were basically just insane people. You have that Carrie Frederick Frost lady and this Helen Theodoropoulos, this Greek lady who like basically just openly says that the church's perspective on gender roles entirely was, you know, regressive and wrong, you know, during the Byzantine Empire. She says this, you know, in the documentary. And then there's also Dr. Jeannie Constantino, who is against, you know, the revival of the Office of Deaconess, but she still sounds just as just as much like a feminist as the other ones, even in her... Re- She's like, yeah, it was this historical reality. She basically concedes the whole historical argument to, you know, the more feminist side and then gives, you know, but then says she's not in favor of it for whatever reason. And Again, she she has her PhD, you know, I'm not as educated on the historical issues and whatnot, but just of all the issues in the church, I really don't think this is the one that needs to be discussed. And the callers, when the callers came around, oh, it was brutal. It was brutal. Oh, it was horrible. This this crazy, this girl, I don't want to say, this girl, this girl in the Orthodox Church, she, Barbara Gulina, I guess her father's a Ukrainian priest or something, and she calls in and she's on the verge of... T- tears and she says the holy spirit is calling her to be a deaconess and that she ministers to girls and whatnot and then we find out this is that same girl who wore a tiara and held a candle at some extremely liberal parish somewhere i think in california i believe and this is not somebody again this is because these are women we have to all be nice to them we have to coddle them we can't just kind of say what needs to be said and that was kind of my issue with the entire thing was if you listen to this i believe it was 50 percent, maybe even at least of the speakers and the commentators on this issue were women and, you know, again, I think that there's many saintly women, you know, nuns and mothers in the church that do have things to say on stuff like this. But are we really a church where the fullness of tradition and, you know, our, the people we listen to on these important issues are female PhDs? Like, I don't, I don't remember that in the patristic commentaries. I don't remember that and really in any kind of, you know, truthful orthodox books. And I'm not saying women can't write good orthodox books and, and say good things, but the fact that it seemed to me that they were afraid, they, they felt that they would offend women by not having at least half of the people discussing this issue be women, which that, that's, you've already conceded the presupposition to the feminists. It's like women have to directly participate in something to, you know, to, to have it be valid, I guess, if it's about women, which, sorry, that's, that's not true. Jesus Christ was a man, is the authority on, on men and women. So, you know, that's, that, that's, how that, that, that's how that is, and that's how that's going to be. And thankfully, I have very much not afraid of this becoming a real issue in the Orthodox Church. And a few wayward parishes and communities may start doing this, and they will be, I believe, reprimanded. And there may be a very small, that's the thing, these these women are like basically threatening schism. They're like, you're not seeing the small defections, you know, like some of them basically said like, yeah, we're willing to go into schism over this issue. And so like, okay, you can take like 20 libtarded parishes with you, but that that would might be good because that would literally just be the end of that issue because this is really only an issue in the english-speaking world and it's really only given any credence by the greek orthodox archdiocese which was why i was disappointed that afr even did this because they've now kind of thrown their hat in with those that while they may not have been in favor of it i think it legitimized the deaconess crowd and their nonsense a little bit yeah and i would uh almost guarantee that most of those people who actually came out in support of deaconesses males females alike you know to those of the fordham type would probably be in favor of a lot of the, you know, or probably either be in favor of the persecutions happening in Ukraine, you know, from a political perspective, actually not either not mentioning them 
uh, siding with Zelensky being against so-called Russian aggression, or even be uh, you know silent on the fact that you know organizations such as ISIS were created by State Department psyops and essentially persecuted Orthodox Christians throughout uh, Assad-controlled Syria and even you know Syria proper. You know these sort of questions of actual persecution taking place around the world, Israelis bombing Christian churches, these things they'd be silent on. Meanwhile. You know, provoking schism, as you said, provoking even small schisms or threatening schism in the U.S., bringing some sort of conflict onto domestic soil over an, an issue which certainly doesn't exist in the church, right? We don't see, I don't see any priest wives or the wives of deacons actually coming out and speaking. It's mostly either single women or single women who, um, you know, single women who aren't married but aren't necessarily academics or and aren't nuns either, or it's mostly like un, unmarried PhD academic women, which again quite questionable perhaps the monastery would be a better uh, like a better outlook you can still be a nun and be an academic so i think some of these people really should look at like an investment of their time possibly into some sort of better avenue for those speaking you know claiming to speak with with inspiration from the holy spirit i can't really comment on that if i said anything like this on this podcast or anywhere else i would probably i would firstly condemn myself as speaking out of prelist first and foremost so that's what i will say to that i can't really yeah, yeah we're not gonna you did not hear that from us here on the show we that's will right. if you hear us saying that we've been replaced <laughs> with ai voice duplicates and the show is compromised so stop Correct. listening absolutely and and look there's plenty of examples of saints saintly women in history and even uh, alive today who i mean not saints but uh, you know active Orthodox women, like we mentioned Maria Lvova Belova, the commission of children's rights. She's a matushka. Her husband is a Russian Orthodox priest and she, you know, she works, she's a matushka. She works in the Russian government, looks after children's rights in Russia. She's the commissioner. You know, she's the one the ICC is after very promptly trying to put her behind bars. Naturally, the most wanted matushka. Well, and, I was, and I was able to meet Mother Cornelia, who's the editor of orthochristian.com, oh. who we all know and love. I was able to meet her at the Shretensky Monastery and I talk to her and she's so intelligent she was great and i can assure you that she has a much better and more orthodox holistic worldview and would thus have the more correct opinion on the deaconess issue than any of these phd women wanting to you know crying crying about quote unquote the church of my the church of our daughters if there was this genuine outpouring of female piety that was leading to the resurgence of this office we would see a we would see a parallel increase in desire for female monasticism, but we're not seeing that. And I'm not saying that the female monasteries in America are not growing, but none of these people have really any connection to that. That's right. And I, and I think, look, the deaconess thing, like, it's unfortunate the discussion even took place, given that there's so many other pressing subjects around not just America, but around the world today, which perhaps, uh, you know, attention should be given to, right? Uh, even ecumenism is probably a better subject which people should be speaking about. And hopefully this uh, conference, which you'll be going to later this year during Great Lent, Conrad, it will just, like shed some light on, you know, some former attempts to actually, you know, cause ecumenism within the church, you know, siding with the Roman Catholics. I think we'll discuss this particular gathering in a later episode. But to kind of end on a happy note, I think let's just talk about the crazy perspective of nothing really has taken place yet, but this perspective interview taking place in Russia, Tucker Carlson uh -huh. arriving in Moscow. And this is crazy because we've seen him interview big figures around the world on his new Twitter X show. Tucker Carlson being the most, probably the most popular journalist on the planet at the moment. And the reason why we like him and why, you know, we speak like, yes, sure. We're suspicious about everybody and everybody could be controlled. But Tucker Carlson is, he might be the only big time journalist in America, you know, like mainstream journalist who actually spoke out in support of the 
Orthodox Church actually during the persecution. He uh-huh. shed light on it. Uh-huh. So we actually trust this guy. We think he is probably not even controlled by those dark forces ruling, you know, the princes of the world today. And he actually may, you know, the prospective interview with President Putin himself may take place and there will be English translations, probably subtitles as well as an active English translator present. So huge things are happening. And this is a really positive development because again, we'll get a different perspective. Hopefully a lot of Americans will be will be woken up because they do like Tucker Carlson. They want to see what he has to say. And he's actually shedding light on a lot of these geopolitical issues around the world. And even church related issues, he brought orthodoxy to the forefront in, in America to some small extent. I think it's worthwhile. So we'll be looking out for that next week, I think. Yeah, it was reported, I saw from Ozzy Cossack, that Tucker was leaving the presidential offices and he'd been there for over an hour. So maybe the interview took place, maybe there was sort of a pre-interview discussion, but it, it does seem that it's all real. So we're looking forward to that. One more piece of good news I forgot to mention, Naib Bukele, he won the El Salvador presidential election by like 90%. So inshallah, he will make El Salvador you know, a jewel in Central America and all the El Salvadorans here in America can head on home. So, you know, that's, that, that, that's what we're hoping for here. But yeah, the Tucker interview, really looking forward to that. That's going to be exciting. And I myself, I am actually headed back to Russia in the nearest future myself. So we'll keep you all posted on that. And yeah, that conference in March, if anyone else is going to the 8th Ecumenical Council Conference in Alabama, be sure to hit me up because I will be there as well. So thank you so much for listening. We'll do the plugs here because... We can never forget to do that. Worldwarnow.substack.com, worldwarnow.co, that's the the real one. So if you want to share it around, do that. I want to get a sharing competition going. You know, there's actually a leaderboard on Substack about who is referring and sharing the podcast the most. So maybe if we see a bit of an increase in that and people do that, we'll start shouting people out for for sharing and referring the show. So check out the Substack and and do that. It really helps us out, of course. Get behind the paywall to hear all our episodes of Ether Hour. I just released a Q&A thread. So get behind the paywall and you can ask us a question in that thread for an upcoming episode where we are going to answer the questions. Probably not the next episode of Ether Hour that's released, but the episode after that, we'll be answering your questions. So be sure to get behind the paywall, support us, and ask us any question you want. World War Now underscore on Twitter, World War Now Telly on Telegram. You can follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. You can follow Dimitri on Twitter at Ocanonist. Be sure to subscribe to us here on YouTube if you're listening there. Hit the subscribe button below. Like the video. That really helps us a lot as well. And leave a comment. Of course, subscribe to us on Rumble as well. The backup is slowly but surely uploading itself. So subscribe to Rumble. That'll be a home base if YouTube nukes us or something like that. So be sure to follow us there. And with all that being said, Dimitri, send us off. Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate your support. You know, over the last year, it's been there's been an amazing growth of support, feedback, things like that. We've actually enjoyed producing the show for you, you know, bi-weekly hopefully moving forward we'll stay consistent there's a really good article coming out coming out and the next eighth hour episode i hope you guys find it uh, a little bit interesting it's it's more of a historical piece but we will be discussing uh, one of our favorite figures this is a, a real throwback to the early episodes of eighth hour so you know share the show subscribe if you can to support us monetarily and you know most importantly uh, provide us with feedback if you think we need to improve upon anything or if there's information which we missed or if you'd like us to cover any sort of story which perhaps hasn't received mainstream media or even alt alternative media news or you know send it in a dm to the world one now channel on twitter x or myself o canonist or gnome rad 
you know, reach out to us, actually say, you guys should cover this particular story, or maybe this hasn't gotten much attention in the past, you know, over the last few months or whatnot, and we'll actually cover it. So, you know, we could crowdsource a lot of this news, and it will not only assist us, but also assist you guys in getting some of these important news stories out to the wider public, I would say, verbally speaking, because I think definitely that's one of the valuable points of the show is that we, we actually collect information from different orthodox as well as uh, conservative sources around and we actually provide it to you guys in uh, more or less an unbiased fashion. But thank you guys for listening and God bless you in this month of February 2024.